From the State Capitol, WFSU Public Media brings you Capitol Report. It appears Florida gun owners soon won't need a permit for concealed carry of firearms, although there are still some who say the proposal doesn't go far enough. Why open carry isn't included in this bill? Very simple. The Florida Sheriff's Association is against it. Also this week, as Florida moves toward universal education vouchers, how much will this cost? It depends on who you ask. It's nonsensical to believe that half of the families currently paying to send their children to these private schools will not apply to get the free money. We'll also have a number of stories about how, despite some current uncertainty and even fear on how to teach black history in Florida, teachers are finding ways of broaching the subject. I'm Tom Flanagan, and this is Capitol Report. Permitless carry is on track to become the law in Florida, a measure that would allow concealed carrying of firearms without a permit or training has passed committees in both the House and Senate and is expected to come up for a vote once the regular session begins next month. But as Valerie Crowder reports, the measure is getting opposition from members of the public on both sides of the issue. Are we going to let them make this the gunshine state? No! Are we going to give up on our quest to end gun violence? No! You're darn right. That's Broward County Democratic Representative Dan Daly alongside university students at a recent rally in front of the old state capitol. They're speaking out against the permitless carry bill advancing in the legislature. Florida State University student Eric Rivers is a member of the Student Government Association. Majority on, on behalf of the majority of students at Florida State University that say we do not feel comfortable with this bill's passage. FSU's SGA adopted a resolution opposing the permitless carry bill soon after it was announced in late January. It's now headed to the House floor with one more committee stop left before it gets taken up in the full Senate. Democratic House Minority Leader Fentress Driscoll of Tampa says her caucus is concerned that making it easier to carry a gun will make communities less safe. This will put more and more guns into our communities and that will lead to more shootings. That has been proven by what we've seen in other states that have passed similar legislation. Recent peer-reviewed studies show a link between more gun violence and looser carry laws. For instance, one study published in the American Journal of Public Health found an increase in gun homicide rates associated with right-to-carry laws. A study published in the New York Academy of Medicine last year shows the rate of officer-involved shootings increased by an estimated 13 percent after permitless carry laws were enacted. Driscoll says the bill is vague about how police should respond if they encounter someone with a gun. In a stand-your-ground state with a long history of interactions between law enforcement and minority communities, this opens up the door to bias and potentially abuse. Opposition to the bill isn't just coming from those advocating for stricter gun laws. Gun rights advocates are also speaking out against it. We have been opposed to the bill from the very beginning, from the moment the press conference was held, with the big placard that said constitutional carry across the front of it. It's a lie. That's Bob White with the Republican Liberty Caucus of Florida addressing members of the Senate Criminal Justice Committee on Monday. White was referring to a press conference held by Republican House Speaker Paul Renner and the Florida Sheriff's Association to unveil the permitless carry bill, which Republican legislative leaders 
have described as constitutional carry. To call this bill constitutional carry is an insult to our intelligence. It does not provide for open carry. It does not eliminate the prohibition against carrying on a college or a university campus, leaving tens of thousands of students in danger of being assaulted. White later explained to WFSU News that he'd support the bill if lawmakers would just add an open carry provision. Broward Democratic Senator Jason Pizzo asked a gun rights supporter if he'd heard from Republicans on why it wasn't included. Gun Owners of America's Florida chapter president, Luis Valdez, answered the question when he stepped up to the podium. And to answer Senator Pizzo's questions on why open carry isn't included in this bill, very simple. The Florida Sheriff's Association is against it, as they have been against it and constitutional carry historically. Legislative staffers confirmed to WFSU News after the meeting that the reason open carry wasn't included was because it didn't have the support of law enforcement. The Florida Sheriff's Association and the Florida Police Chiefs Association have supported permitless concealed carry, but not all law enforcement officers are on board with the bill. Leon County Sheriff Walt McNeil is among those officers. He spoke about it during a recent meeting at the Capitol Tiger Bay Club in Tallahassee. We've had a couple of shootings in our town, road rage. I suspect we may see more of that occur as well. Uh, it's an unknown right now from my perspective, but it's something we've got to kind of get ahead a of, if you will, and try to make sure we got the training and the, and the resources uh, for our deputies and our officers as they make those contacts out there with those persons who are now legally armed. Those who oppose the bill out of concern for public safety aren't optimistic that permitless carry will fail, as it's expected to pass the Republican-controlled legislature and end up on Governor Ron DeSantis's desk this year. And advocates for open carry aren't hopeful that they'll get what they want either. I'm Valerie Crowder. The state of Florida has come out with its estimate for how much a massive expansion of the state's school choice program will cost about $210 million. But that's far below the number put out by an independent group. So why are the numbers so far apart? Lynn Hatter explains. The Florida Policy Institute put out a figure a few weeks ago stating that the cost of Florida's expansion of its school voucher program would be around $4 billion. But the state's estimate is way less. When Republican Representative Kaylee Tuck delivered the state's figure for the cost of the voucher program, it was met with puzzled faces from fellow lawmakers and a packed crowd. The first to ask the obvious question was Republican Representative Daniel Alvarez of Hillsborough. I've gone on Florida Policy Institute's website, and they're telling us that even under conservative estimates, Florida's empowerment scholarship would cost $4 billion. But when I read the analysis, I thought it was, we're saying it's 209.6. Where's the, that gap? Education watchers have been waiting weeks to see where the state's price tag for the measure would land. The discrepancy between the figures lie in how the two sides are doing the math. Here's Tuck explaining how the state reached its $209 million figure. And listener, beware. You're about to hear a lot of acronyms. My apologies in advance. First component, expanding the eligibility for the FES EO scholarship. The total fiscal is $112.1 million. The basis for calculating this fiscal involves the estimated number of students currently enrolled in private schools participating in either the FTC or the FES scholarship programs, or both, but who do not currently receive a scholarship. 
And why did we only uh, consider private schools? Because any current public school student who may elect to choice a scholarship due to the expanded eligibility is already funded in the FEFP. Therefore, switching over to being a scholarship FTE has no fiscal impact. Okay, here's the translation. The basic assumption the state is making is that since money follows the student in Florida, when kids leave a public school, those state dollars go with them. So on paper, this is a wash, even though public schools will lose that money. The other assumption is that families will first use the corporate tax money, which does not belong to the state, then use the state-funded dollars, so the state gets a savings there too. And the third assumption is that not all students in private schools currently without a scholarship will decide to go back and get one. And the institute includes all currently enrolled private school students, but not all Florida private school students actually accept the scholarship. It's nonsensical to believe that half of the families currently paying to send their children to these private schools will not apply to get the free money. Of course they will. And especially because this is an ESA and they can spend it on more than just simple tuition. That's Sue Woltonsky, a Monroe County School Board member who believes Florida may soon run into the same financial problems that states like Arizona and New Hampshire are currently dealing with if Florida doesn't get its math right. Those other states badly underestimated the cost of their voucher program expansions, and now those programs are threatening their overall fiscal health. In Florida, the state is considering allowing all school-age children to become eligible for a voucher they can use on private school tuition or other education-related expenses. This idea of universal school choice is a long-held goal of advocates and something the state has worked toward for the past 25 years. Opponents worry it'll result in an exodus of students from public schools, irreparably crippling the system. In Woltonsky's county... 43% of the state funds are being taken back to fund these um, programs, and that will just get higher... What Woltonsky is referring to is how the state uses school districts as a pass-through to get the voucher money to the private schools. It's not actually the district's money, so they're not technically losing anything. But they're also able to see what they may have otherwise gotten had those students stayed within the public school system. Meanwhile, the Florida Policy Institute is not budging on its $4 billion figure. Already this year, more than a billion dollars has been diverted from FEFP public school funds to private education. HB1 can only cost more. I stand by this estimate. We created this with the Education Law Center. We'd be happy to review that with you. That's the Institute's Noreen Dollard. Her figures are based on the current costs of the program, the public school students leaving and transferring their dollars away, and more private school families who currently don't have scholarships gaining access to them. That last one is a major sticking point, and it's something even Governor Ron DeSantis expressed concerns about. Dollard suggests lawmakers listen to the governor's advice on that one. I'm Lan Hatter. In a high-stakes debate, the Florida House today began moving forward with a controversial plan designed to shield businesses and insurance companies from costly lawsuits. A House subcommittee today passed the measure, which includes limiting fees paid to plaintiffs' attorneys, changing what are known as bad faith laws, and helping defendants avoid paying damages when they're only partially at fault. Coming up on Capitol Report, a mental health expert talks about how social media is affecting children. The most unwell are 
The younger the cohort, the more psychiatrically unwell they are, the higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. We'll have a story montage about the teaching of black history in Florida. A lot of the time we hear of the Italian Renaissance and how that affected us, but we don't really talk a lot about how Africa has affected our country as a whole. And Florida says goodbye to the last statewide growth manager who often ran afoul of those who wanted to build developments with little or no oversight. They didn't like that response. They wanted to go young. Sure enough, my first term here, they come with proposed legislation. Digital technology and social media are having a negative impact on children's mental health. That was the claim by an expert who testified before Florida lawmakers during the run-up to the 2023 session. Brendan Brown reports on a growing bipartisan effort in the state legislature to provide new rules and protections for minors who are active on social media platforms. Dr. Nicholas Caderas is an expert on mental health and addiction. He recently warned lawmakers that social media use can start negatively impacting children at a very young age. If you drop a tablet into the crib or into a two or three year old's lap, you'll you'll quiet them. The digital babysitter works really great. They will be hyper focused on the bells and whistles of that screen. But then absent that screen, when you take the screen away, they become very uh, distracted. They need now they become dependent on bells and whistles to keep focused and now you've created an ADHD profile. Kadera says he's seen what he views as red flags among kids who use social media on a daily basis. Borderline personality disorders were rising. And, and what was interesting was that as you looked at the mental health metrics across generational, uh, baby boomer to Gen X to millennials to uh, Gen Z, the most unwell are the younger the cohort, the more psychiatrically unwell they are, the higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. Broward Democratic Senator Rosalind Osgood is a former school board member, and she's concerned about what she's seen and read about what kids have access to on social media platforms. And it is just a lot of cyberbullying, just a lot of hardship. Many children literally end up trying to commit suicide. Two lawmakers are coming together to do something about it. Democratic Representative Michelle Rayner Goosby of St. Petersburg and Republican Representative Tyler Soroy of Brevard have introduced a bill to require social media platforms to increase their disclosures and strengthen content moderation. Platforms that fail to meet the requirements would be blocked from accepting new accounts for minors. The bill also prevents public schools from requiring students to register, enroll, or participate in social media platforms for educational purposes. Here's Rainer Goolsby. I think that this bill will help students, um, one, you know, especially those who are under 18, I think that it will provide some guardrails and protection. I think a lot of times that we see students who are getting bullied at school, students who are, you know, seeing things on social media, that's not really reality. And one, it's distracting them from school, but also it ha- is having a severe mental health effect on them. Kara Bolander is the state policy director at the Computer and Communications Industry Association out of Washington, D.C. She says the bill may be well-intended, but difficult to enforce at a state level. The bill does present some questions regarding compliance feasibility. Uh, The bill includes several vague definitions, um, or or for that matter, lack of key definitions. For example, the bill doesn't define uh, what a social media platform is, um, nor does it define minor. 
which makes it difficult to determine who is subject to the bill's provisions and presents challenges for how businesses can comply. Meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is taking an aim at TikTok amid growing concerns that the platform is dangerous to children and ongoing suspicions that it feeds user information to China where it originated. That they use in China, it's much different than what they're trying to do in the United States. With China, it's all very uh, wholesome, patriotic. Uh, in the United States, they're trying to inject as much garbage into this as possible. They're getting the data from people, creates a huge security risk uh, through our country. The governor's administration is looking to curb access to the site on government Wi-Fi. It comes after the University of Florida said it will block the site on its campus. In terms of protecting minors and children from online harms, we're going to prevent businesses from knowingly selling or sharing a minor's consumers, a minor consumer's personal information without affirmative consent of the parent or guardian. We're going to allow a minor consumer's parent or guardian to access, delete, or correct the minor's personal information. We're going to prohibit the unauthorized collection, use, or sharing of student PII obtained from online programs at school. I'm Brendan Brown. Florida students and teachers are finding new ways to celebrate Black History Month at a time when state leaders are cracking down on how that history can be taught. We have a number of stories on the subject produced by WUSF's Carrie Sheridan and WLRN's Kate Payne gets us started. Black people have always been a part of Miami's history, but students don't necessarily learn that. A lot of the problems we have in this country stem from ignorance and the fact that people don't know the history. Renee O'Connor teaches Black history at Miami Norland Senior High School. We talk about redlining. We talk about housing discrimination. We talk about real world things so they can see that history is not just like dates and times and pictures of old people in a book because it's catching up to them every single day. This year, the stakes seem more clear as state officials are shutting down AP African American Studies classes and conservatives are trying to ban Toni Morrison books. The history of Black Americans and Brown Americans has always been a struggle. So if it's the governor, if it's police brutality, whatever it is, it's going to continue for the rest of our lives. It's how we respond to it. For Sierra, history has always been one of her favorite subjects. When her school began piloting the AP Black Studies class, she jumped at the chance to take it. We're not using her last name to protect her privacy. A lot of the time we hear of the Italian Renaissance and how that affected us, but we don't really talk a lot about how Africa has affected our country as a whole. Sierra was shocked when Governor Ron DeSantis's administration blocked her AP class. I think these things should be talked about just so we can show appreciation to the people who lost their lives and the people who fought for civil rights, who fought for voting rights and made our country the way it is. O'Connor says teaching this history isn't just about the struggle, but about joy. We're focusing on happy things, Black joy in a, as a form of resistance through music, through dance, through literature, through church, through food. So that's our focus here at school this month. Sierra is finding ways to celebrate, too, by being a part of her school's Black History show. This year, she says, the theme is resistance. I'm Kate Payne in Miami. 
I'm Olympia Bailu. I'm a middle school science teacher. I'm 56, I don't mind saying that. We learned about the history of some African Americans, but there wasn't a lot of history about African Americans who were in science. So we had, of course, George Washington Carver, who was a famous African American scientist. But most of the scientists that we learned about were the scientists that most people see, like Albert Einstein, of course, also Isaac Newton, and that whole range of white scientists. So I never did see any real representation of African-American scientists or any other people of color. The question in my mind was, are African-Americans intelligent enough to be inventors? you know, scientists, are we? Uh, And that's how I felt because there wasn't that representation. And as I started to dig and find out about different scientists, I found out, oh my gosh, there are so many African-Americans that made huge contributions to science. Mary Jackson and also Catherine G. Johnson They were a part of the group of women that was featured in the movie Hidden Figures. You know what we're doing here? We're putting a human on top of a missile, shooting him into space, and it's never been done before. I need a mathematician that can look beyond the numbers. Math doesn't yet exist. They were known as human calculators. And so, you know, my students, when I we were reading their bios, they couldn't believe it. They didn't have all the fancy calculators that we have now. Catherine's a gal for that. She can handle any numbers you put in front of them. These women were responsible literally for calculating, being very precise. When you think about astronauts going into outer space, Okay, great, they're out there, but how do we get them back now safely? (laughs) Yes, they let women do some things at NASA, Mr. Johnson. And it's not because we wear skirts. It's because we wear glasses. And I'm going to ask that everyone go research Alice Ball because she was absolutely brilliant. She basically found a method in applying certain topical ointments, made them water-soluble where they can be injected. That was a huge impact in the early 1920s as far as treating leprosy in Hawaii. Her method, of course, was stolen from someone else, a white man, okay? And it wasn't until years later that her method, uh, she received credit for it, that she received recognition for it. So it's interesting that now that I'm teaching science, I feel like I really have to bring to the forefront all the significant contributions that African Americans made in science. So this month, of course, is Black History Month, and a part of my lesson plans have been to incorporate daily a biography on an African American in science. And I share that out to all of the teachers, the staff at the school, and I had many of them come up to me, and they are wowed because they did not know the history. I'm Cheryl Rodriguez. I am a professor of Africana Studies and Anthropology at the University of South Florida. I was born during the era of segregation and just on the cusp of the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement. So that is something that informs me as a teacher 
it's not something that makes me sad or that is a source of anger. Rather, it is a source of knowledge and empowerment. One of the tragedies of that era, the Jim Crow era, was the invisibility of knowledge about Black people's suffering and triumphs. When there was silence about slavery, when there was silence about racial segregation, there was also shame and pain and embarrassment associated with our history. I'm not a historian, but history is the foundation of my research and teaching. So, for example, when I teach about race, my students learn the history of race science and the ways in which different groups of people are categorized, were categorized historically, and the ways in which the science of human beings has developed and grown so that we understand that race is a socially constructed concept, not a biological concept. When thinking about the importance of teaching Black history, I often quote James Baldwin, who wrote a lot about history and its importance in our lives. You have to realize that, all right, you are a Negro, and this is all true, but before that, you are a man, and your life is in your hands. And uh, he wrote something like this. He says, the tale of how we suffer, how we are delighted, and how we may triumph is never new, but it must be heard. Baldwin also said that this history is the only light we've got in all this darkness. So the birth and development of Black studies was really a powerful source that allowed people to study our history, to study our culture without shame. Students love this knowledge. Students are hungry for this knowledge. And I teach every ethnic group on campus. Many, many students take my classes. And there's not a day that passes that I don't get an email or a call from students saying, thank you. I think that today when we see Black people celebrating and joyful, I think it is just that we have grown in our knowledge of who we are. And when you hear Cheryl Lee Ralph singing Lift Every Voice and Sing in the Super Bowl recently, you heard uh, someone celebrating. We have not only survived, but thrived as a people. And I hope that students will be inspired to continue to grow in our knowledge of the Black experience. You're listening to Capital Report from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. Finally this week... The man who twice served as the state of Florida's top growth manager has died. Tom Pelham headed up the Department of Community Affairs twice before the legislature abolished it in 2011. 
Pelham became the department's secretary just two years after the legislature created it to oversee regional and risky location development in 1985. And right after his appointment by Governor Bob Martinez, he recalled a visit from a group of statewide developers. In an interview with WFSU last year, he said they wanted the green light to build big retail centers around every turnpike and interstate highway interchange in the state. We simply said the planning for that needs to take place first. We need to know how we're going to pay for all those, those development rights. They didn't like that response. They wanted to go young. Sure enough, during my first term here, they come with proposed legislation. Legislation that would ultimately do away with the department and Pelham's job in 2011 during his second term. Tom Pelham then stayed in Tallahassee and practiced environmental mediation in regards to development projects. He passed away Wednesday at the age of 79. Our regular Capitol Report correspondents are Brendan Brown, Valerie Crowder, Gina Jordan, Lynn Hatter, Regan McCarthy, and Margie Menzel. Thanks also to Kate Payne and Carrie Sheridan. Technical assistance for Capitol Report comes from Taylor Cox, and I'm Tom Flanagan. Please join us again next week for more reports from the State Capitol. Capitol Report is a production of WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee.